number of years ago, we were camping at the Gibraltar Range National Park on the Queensland New South Wales border. And come Sunday morning, we decided we're going to head into Glen Innes for church. And as we neared the outskirts of town, we drove past a sign telling you to tune into such and such FM frequency to get all the local tourist information. You know the signs that you see on the sides of the roads sometimes. And because we we're such really good tourists, that's exactly what we did. We tuned in and we had a bit of a listen. Welcome to our town, they said. And while you're here, make sure you drive up to the top of the hill overlooking our town and, and see these standing stones. It's basically a, a replica of Stonehenge. And then it went on to describe how they'd set these stones up to honour the Celtic settlers and how, because they didn't want to offend any religion, they sort of Christianised them a bit by building a St George's cross into the middle of them. Anyway, after church, we went up to the top of this hill and, and we did exactly that, had a look at their stones. And as I looked at them, I, I just felt an immense sadness. Um, and the spirit inside of me was just grieving. Why would they do that? Why would they set up pagan stones over their town? And, and there was something I was really proud of. This is a tourist attraction. Make sure you come and see these things. And yet inside of me, I just felt really disturbed about it. Have you ever felt like that? You know, when you've seen something or you've heard something and you know that it's wrong, you know that it's ungodly or it could be just downright evil, and some people are really excited about it, but you can't share their excitement because you're just feeling crook in the guts. Well, if you've ever felt like that, then you can understand something of what Paul felt when he walked through the streets of Athens. When Paul arrived in Athens, he was on his own. He'd been run out of town. Justin told us last week how he was in Berea and and he he and Timothy and Silas were in Berea and Paul gets run out of town. Um, Timothy and Silas stayed behind to to finish up the missionary work that they were doing there and they're going to catch up a bit later. And so Paul finds himself in Athens on his own. And he walks the streets of Athens looking at the sights and we're told that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, the Greek word that we translate as as provoked usually means to stir to anger or or to be irritated or to be incensed. So as he saw that this city was full of idols, his spirit was stirred to anger. He, He was incensed about it. He had this grinding in his guts. You know, these people, they've fallen for a lie and he is angered about it. You, you do know there's such a thing as godly anger, don't you? You know, we, we're taught so much, you know, don't, don't be angry. But, you know, there is a godly anger. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. And sometimes God gives us a holy anger, a righteous anger. Now, let me ask you something. When your spirit is provoked within you, whether you be provoked to grief or whether you be provoked to holy anger, when your spirit is provoked within you, for what purpose is that? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of something that's dreadfully wrong, why does he do it? Does he do it just so you keep it to yourself? Well... If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something in your life that's wrong, of course it's for you. It's the Holy Spirit convicting you of guilt, uh, uh, convicting you of a sin that you need to confess to God and repent of and turn away from that sin so you can be forgiven. 
But what about when the Holy Spirit gives you a groaning within and it's something that, that you don't need to repent of. It's something that's going on around you. You're grieving for what others are doing. You're grieving for what others are saying. You're grieving for this unrighteousness that you see happening. What about then? You know, sometimes we're made to feel guilty if when we see what's going on in the world, we, we so grieve for this situation or maybe even we get the holy anger about it and we try then to point that out to other people that this is a sin that they need to repent of and turn towards God's truth, usually we get made to feel pretty bad if we do that. Uh, you get accused of being judging or being judgmental. I guess we can see it currently in, in Australia in the current marriage debate that just seems to go on and on and on and on. And whenever you see a Christian get up and actually speak out God's word for it, they just get really cane. You know, they, they're branded as being narrow-minded you know, and, and just against these people and you know, how they won't stand up for marriage equality and so they get condemned for being judgmental. But it can happen in anything. Well, you know, sometimes when that happens to us, you're actually in good company. You know Lot who lived in Sodom? Peter describes Lot as righteous Lot. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. He says, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, did Lot just learn to get on with life in Sodom and not let it affect him? No. It was a godly torment. It grieved him to see the happenings of Sodom. So, did God just give Lot this grief just so he'd feel bad? No. Nope. Who's going to reveal to the world how God feels about their actions and their practices if God's people don't do it? Lot stood up to all the men of Sodom and said, do not do this wicked thing. When Jesus entered Jerusalem just before the Passover, he looked down on Jerusalem and he grieved. He wept over Jerusalem. Did Jesus remain silent? No, he went down into Jerusalem, he walked into the temple and he was angry with what he saw and he made a whip out of cords and he drove them out with that whip and then he preached. For the whole week he preached and that was the week that led to his death. And when you have that grief in your heart, when the Holy Spirit is putting this urging inside of you, It's not just for you. The Holy Spirit, maybe through the gift of discernment, is showing you how God feels about his world. And that's not something just for us to keep to ourselves. Maybe somebody else you know needs to be warned. Maybe someone you know is falling for a lie and they need to be guided to the truth. Maybe someone you know is caught up in a sin and they don't even recognise it as a sin and they need somebody who loves them enough to cross over that barrier of live and let live and to actually tell them that they need to repent. If the Lord is grieving your spirit over what's going on around you, you have a responsibility before God not to remain silent. I'm reminded of the prophet Ezekiel. You know Ezekiel? The Lord said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're going to be like a watchman on the wall. 
So we have the lookout up on the city wall and their job is to keep an eye out and when they see the enemy coming, they are to blow the trumpets and sound the alarm. He said, Ezekiel, you're going to be like that. I'm going to be telling you how I feel about what my nation's doing. And you have to sound that alarm. If you sound that alarm and the people ignore it, well, it's on their heads. But if I tell you something and you don't sound that alarm, Ezekiel, it's on your head. And so Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw these idols. What did he do about it? Well, he preached. The answer was to turn from these idols and turn to the living God. And so that's what he preached. He reasoned in the synagogue. He reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And there's two groups of people that it specifically mentions here who are in Athens who heard him preaching. They were both groups of philosophers, but they're of different, different schools of thought. The Epicureans and the Stoics. And I'm mentioning these today as well because what these guys used to believe is very much what pe- people believe in the world today. Because the world isn't so different today as what it was back in Paul's day. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. So the Epicureans, they believed that everything happened by chance and death is the end of it all. So eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and that's the end of that. We are no more. You know a few Epicureans, don't you? Yeah, of course they don't call themselves Epicureans, but that's exactly what they believe and and how they live. That's just exactly an example of what they believe. There is no God with a purpose. When I die, it's all over. I've seen dead kangaroos on the side of the road and they just rot into the ground and that's what I'll be like. So I might as well enjoy myself now. Um, There's nothing for me to worry about after death. She's all over. Now, I've seen a a few grey nomads getting around over recent years uh, and they've got a sticker on the back of their caravans telling me that they're on a ski holiday. Has anyone ever seen that sticker? We're on a ski holiday, spending the kids' inheritance. Now, that's a pretty good example of that philosophy. Eat, drink and be merry now because tomorrow we die and that's the end of that. The other group were the Stoics. And the Stoics believed in self-sufficiency. Even today we might use that word about somebody and say he's a very Stoic person. That means they're they're very strong in character, they're full of self-sufficiency, they don't depend on anybody. And they stretched that to their understanding of spiritual things as well. They did believe that there was a divine, rational, ordering principle that was in all things and in all beings. To them, all nature were what made up God, they were part of what made up God and therefore they essentially were God and therefore they had to depend on themselves. And so they believed that everything was in their control and in their destiny. Anyway, these two groups of people heard Paul speaking in the marketplace and to put it simply, they're pretty disparaging about Paul. They just said, yeah. Who is this fellow? He's just talking a load of rot. He's like he's just been picking up little bits of people's philosophy from here, there and everywhere and he's mixed it all up and he's regurgitated it, trying to make himself sound sound important and knowledgeable. He's got no idea about what he's talking about. But there were some others there who probably listened a little bit more carefully. No, 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 he's actually talking about something different here. I think it might be a new God that he's talking about. And so to sort out what Paul was actually teaching, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, from what I can make of it, 
you weren't allowed just to open slather to talk about whatever you wanted to on the streets of Athens. After all, it was a university town and they had their standards to keep up. And the Areopagus was the place at which they decided whether you were allowed to teach on their streets or not. So Paul, standing in the midst of this Areopagus, a gathering of some of the most educated men in Athens, says, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Okay, so here's Paul. He's wanting to tell them about Jesus. But for him to get to tell them about Jesus, he really needs to start where they're at and take them to Jesus. And that's how Paul always worked. When Paul worked with the Jews... Well, the Jews believed in one God, in the one true God. The Jews believed in the Messiah and the Jews believed the scriptures. And so that's where Paul would start. He would start with the scriptures and he would prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But he's not talking to the Jews now, he's talking to to these Greeks. And they don't believe the scriptures and they're not waiting for the Messiah. So what he does is he starts where they're at and he moves them towards Jesus. And the Jews, Greeks, they, they believed in a, in a multitude of gods. That they were very religious, but they were religiously wrong. And so he starts out, he sees this altar to the unknown God. He thinks, right, there's my starting point. I'll tell them about that. There's a, there's a bit of a comical story behind that, that uh, altar to the unknown God. Apparently about 500 years earlier, a pestilence had befallen the city and people were starting to die. And so they came to the conclusion they must have upset one of the gods. But which one? Because there are so many. They had a multitude of gods. It's very confusing being a polytheist. And a chap by the name of Epimenides came up with a cunning plan. What we'll do is we'll get a flock of sheep and we'll let them go at this end of town and they'll go through town and the altar at which they, they stop at, that'll be the god that we've upset And so we'll sacrifice the sheep to that God and then the pestilence will leave the city. And all the townsfolk feel, what a marvellous idea. What a brilliant man you are, Epimenides. But of course, you can guess what happened. They let the sheep go at this end of town and the sheep ran all the way through town, past every altar and out the other side of town, they find themselves a paddock and go and camp under a nice shady tree. You just imagine it, can't you? <laughs> this unfolding. These brilliant people, we're, well, this is what we're going to do. And man, what was their conclusion? Not that their cunning plan was a dismal failure. No, no, no. There must be another God. There must be another God. And, and we've upset that God. And no wonder we've upset him. We don't even know about him. We haven't even built an altar to him. And so that's what they did. They built an altar to this unknown God and they sacrificed the sheep on that. And this is the altar that Paul sees. He says, there's my opening. He says to them, look, you're all very religious, but you admit that there's a God who you don't know. Let me tell you about that God. The God you don't know is actually the God who made all the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of the heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as if he needs that. 
After all, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In the mid-80s, I remember there was a very noisy song came out on the wireless. Um, It was an ACDC song, Who Made Who? And um, who made who? Who made who? And really, that's the best way I can summarise what Paul's message was to the Areopagus. Who made who? You made your gods, but there's a God who made you. Idolatry is something that God hates. And that's why the spirit in Paul was angered when he saw all these idols in the town. Idolatry is when somebody makes a God of their own design, a God in their own image. And even today, we might think, oh, we're free of idolatry. But you know what? There's a modern day idolatry in our society today like you wouldn't believe. There are people who often say to me things Something along the lines of, I believe in God, but I like to think that God is like, and then they'll paint paint me a picture of their God. And their God will be nothing like the God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. Nothing like the real one true God. It's not an image of God based on fact. It's not an image of God based on revelation. It's an entirely a God of their own imagination, and often it's a God who looks very much like themselves. Now, that's idolatry. And then Paul tells them how this God who made them is the God who reveals himself to humanity. He said, God determined the time period in which you live. God determines the place in which we live. And he does this with a very specific purpose, so that we would seek God and perhaps that we might feel our way toward him and find him. Have you ever considered this? It's not by chance that you were born on your birthday. It's not by chance that you were born this side of BC or AD. It's not by chance that you were born in either this century or last century or or in a particular year, month or day. It was done so that you would seek God. It's not by chance that you were, that you live where you live. It's not by chance that, that you were born into the family in which you were born or that you are now in the family relationship that you're in now. It's not by chance that you live where we, where you live. It was done so that you would seek God. It's not by chance that you're here today. You're here today so that you would seek God. Now, I find this to be one of the most encouraging bits of scripture. You being you, God put you where you are and it's not by chance. And he did it so that you would seek him. And if we get this, if we actually understand this, wow, what what a difference it makes for us in our confidence to share the gospel with people. Do you know the biggest reason why Christians don't share the gospel, why they don't share their faith? It's because they have this this belief that those around them aren't interested. Well, God's saying something different here. The Lord is telling us that he put people where they are and at the time period at which he did so that they would seek him. This is telling us people are looking for God. Well, not everybody is looking for God every minute of every hour of every day. We know that. But God has designed their life so that ultimately... They will seek him. 
and perhaps feel around and find him. God's done his bit. He's lined everything up. But then there's what we do. Perhaps we might reach out for him and find him. Why? Why does God want us to find him? Why should we reach out and find God? Well, I'm going to tell you today, there's a reason and then there's judgment. And please don't get the two of them confused. Some people come to faith in God because they're afraid of judgment. But that's not really the reason that we should come to God. That would sort of be like a parent saying to their child, you will love me or else I'll give you a jolly good flogging. That's really not the way to get our kids to love us. God's given us a far better reason to love us than to threaten us with judgment. So too often we get the reason for loving God confused with the consequences of not getting right with God. Why should we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour? Why should we bow our knee before Jesus as Lord? Why should we put off our pride and come to God? I'll tell you why. It's because he's Lord. It's because we've been created in his image. He tells us that, that we are his offspring. Because without God, we're incomplete. You know, I asked Robin if we could have that uh, Waves of Mercy, Waves of Grace song for the kids today. Because that's what it's talking about. Every step we take, we take in Him. It says here, in Him we live and move and have our being. Without God, we are incomplete. God is love and He wants to bring us into that love. And this love is, is something which is very different to what the, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans were on about. This love is an eternal love which goes on and on and on. The consequence of rejecting God is judgment. But the reason to come to God is because he is Lord. Do you see the difference there? So Paul said to them, God's been putting up with your idolatry long enough. He's been putting up with your unbelief long enough. God's been overlooking it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What does that mean? What does it mean to repent? God commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent means to turn around and change direction. To repent means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and and that he is raised from the dead. It is to believe in him for our salvation. It means to yield to Jesus as Lord and repentance has a very practical side to it as well. To turn from the practice of sin and begin practicing righteousness. And repentance is critical for salvation. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Some people will tell you that repentance is is just believing in Jesus and that's all you have to do. Just believe in Jesus, just believe he saved you on the cross and you don't have to do anything else. Let me say that's a very shallow 
interpretation of what repentance is. Biblical repentance is very much a doing word. Biblical repentance includes a concerted and demonstrated change in our behaviour. Because we once used to live for ourselves, we once used to live by the principles of the world, but now we're living for Christ. Now we're living for God. And so repentance is very much a change in our behaviour. Jesus said something that will probably shock you. He said on judgment day, there's going to be those who believe in Jesus who go to hell. Now that might shock shock some of you. He said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who are they? Who are these people that he's talking about? Well, it's pretty clear. He's talking about people who who believe in him. They call him Lord. In their eyes, they've even done mighty works for Jesus. Why don't they get into the kingdom of heaven? Belief without obedience. Belief without repentance. It's as simple as that. They had a change of mind, but their heart wasn't changed and their actions weren't changed. They didn't repent in the, in the completeness of its meaning. I get asked all the time, why are there so many hypocrites in church? I'll tell you why. It's because us preachers don't preach the full meaning of repentance. We spend too much time lulling our congregations into a false sense of assurance instead of preaching about the narrow road that Jesus taught us about. The hard road, the road that leads to life. A road that Jesus said very few people will find. And yet, there are a lot of unrepentant hypocrites on the wide road that leads to destruction. And some of those are in the church. The day of judgment is coming. It's a day that's fixed. I don't know the date and you don't know the date, but it's a date that God's got circled on his calendar. It's set and it's coming. And the Lord Jesus, the one who has been raised from the dead, is going to be our judge. So, what happened when Paul gave that message? That's a pretty hard message to hear. Well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, that was enough for them. They couldn't believe that. But some of them did believe. And those same two groups may be in this room right now. That's the gospel message. The Lord is calling you to believe and he's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to repentance in the true sense of its meaning, to give up all that you are, to give up all that you have, to turn your back on your old sinful way of living and to follow Jesus because he's risen from the dead and he is Lord. And there are those who will scoff at that. They'll be very polite about it because they don't want to offend anybody but on the inside they may be saying, nah, I can't believe that. 
Or maybe you might believe but not be willing to repent. Oh, the cost is too high. I'll just stick with the easy believism method. I'll just believe and I won't make any concerted effort to be obedient to God. But some of you are repenting even now because the Lord has cut to the heart of the matter and you know Jesus is Lord and you don't need to know anything else. I'll give up everything to follow Jesus. God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Have you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sometimes your word cuts deep. As I read this passage and and see how Paul walked through that city and he saw their world view and what they believed and the practices that they carried out and he was angered by it. And Lord, I know... Sometimes I look at the world and and things that are going on in the world anger me. But Lord, then when I actually start to examine myself and, and when I pray, Lord, reveal to me the worldliness in my life that I need to repent of. Oh Lord, there's so many ways in which in which I live for myself or live by the world standards instead of Instead of embracing Christ, Lord, sometimes you've called us to repentance and we've valiantly self-justified ourselves and gone, no, I don't need to repent of that. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, I pray for each person in this congregation, including myself, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict us of what needs to change in our lives. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change us. We know this is something we can't do in our own strength. We need you, Lord. As Paul said, in in you we live and move and have our being. Lord, reign in us, I pray. Amen.